Hey, it's Tom. We're back with episode 12 of the Canna Boomers podcast. This week, we have Kurt Robbins, also known as Gooey Rabinsky. You might recognize his byline from High Times or the other publications he's written for. About 500 articles all. So he really knows his stuff about cannabis, and he's written for a lot of businesses as well that are getting off the ground. Has deep knowledge of the regulatory environment out there and what to expect as legalization rolls through the states. We talk about what's going on in Canada, about various strain names and the differences between indica and sativa. Many aspects to talk about. It's really a great episode. I hope you enjoy it. And drop us a line if you have uh, questions or if you want us to interview a certain person who has expertise or um, just let us know how it's going. Uh, Tom at cannaboomers.com. Enjoy the episode. This is Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast, CBD, microdosing, and all things related to medical cannabis for baby boomers. From San Diego, here's your host, Thomas J. Kurt Robbins, welcome to the Cannaboomers podcast. You're, we're connecting, we're both in California, you're up in LA and I'm in San Diego. Really happy to connect and can you tell our audience about your experience in, in this industry? For almost 15 years, I wrote under the pen name Gooey Rabinsky and the uh, you know, that was all great, but the whole reason I did that was because I was earning my living. I was supporting my, my family uh, by doing technical writing for corporate America, the Fortune 200. I was uh, within the IT shops of banks and insurance companies. They're conservative organizations. You don't wave the cannabis flag. Uh, so that's why I had to hide behind the Guru Rubinsky pen name. Quite honestly, I'm shedding that name now. I just had a business meeting last night with a guy I've known online for years and years, but we never met face to face. He's in LA for a meeting. What's he say when he walks up? Hi, Gooey. How are you? He can see the look in my face and he goes, oh, I'm not supposed to say You that. have like 500 articles out there as Gooey Rabinsky? Correct. Yeah. Um, every, the majority of my writing has been in the IT segment for software developers and audiences like that. Uh, in 2004, for a variety of reasons, I got interested in the cannabis culture and immediately kind of gravitated toward the efficacy science, the cannabinoids, the terpenes, the CB1 receptors. That, that was really what interested me. Well, I couldn't express that interest through corporate America and my day job. So I invented Gooey Rubinsky, started hitting up magazines like High Times and Cannabis Culture and you know, probably a few dozen that are no longer in business. Uh, and and started researching, you know, the efficacy and the science and the culture and the business of cannabis in that respect. And it was just a fun outlet, uh, and and I enjoyed it. Well, 15 years later, the landscape is very different, right? It's everything you and I have been talking about. We have uh, legal medical in dozens of U.S. states, which compared to a decade or so ago is like amazing. Uh, and now we have uh, almost 10 states, you know, we've got what the count is nine now that are adult use legal. Technically speaking, that's still very new. And it doesn't mean we have safe, easy access for consumers or patients in those states. We need to realize this. It just means they're kind of getting started. And this is a multi-year, you know, launching adult use legalization or medical legalization in any jurisdiction, in any state is a multi-year effort. People tend to think on all sides of the fence, bureaucrats, voters, uh, entrepreneurs, that this happens within months. But unfortunately, we would love that, but that's just not the reality. It takes years to- Right, I mean, each state has its own machinery and there's uh, probably an instinct to let county by county or even city by city, every little community decide for itself, as I guess should be the case, but 
And, and some want multiple dispensaries, some don't. And, and everything else that goes along with it, growing operations, uh, deliveries, all that stuff needs to be sorted out, right? Exactly. It's extremely complicated. And one of the things that makes it complicated is just that there's so many diverse parties involved. You have small entrepreneurs, big companies. The small guys are afraid of the big guys. We hear this all the time in California, right? 2023 is going to come up. The moratorium on the big guys coming into the California market is going to end. And a lot of your craft companies, you know, mom and pops, uh, technically the U.S. government categorizes you as small business if you have fewer than 300 employees. Yeah. So if I have a buddy who has a company with 250 employees, I consider him to be pretty big. But technically speaking, according to the federal government in the U.S., he's a small business. So we have all these diverse parties and we've got the government and it just it just gets really complicated. Those parties typically do not agree with one another. And sometimes they just flat out can't stand one another. But this is a negotiated process. Uh, it, I think the most unfortunate part of it is that entrepreneurs like you and I do not have a lot of spare bandwidth, right? Things are hopping right now. They're very excited. And I don't know about you, but I just don't have a lot of spare time to be attending city council meetings and all these things that I would like to be doing, quite honestly. Um, but as an industry, we need to be doing that. You know, We need to uh, have people who are tapped into the lobbying side of the industry, to the politics side, people like Tom uh, Angel, who I kick him money every month uh, in the marijuana movement because I, I love this guy because that's all he does is politics and he helps me serve my clients. My 50 bucks I give to him every month is some of the best money I ever spend because I just had a client call this morning directly before this podcast. And sure enough, some of the stuff I learned from him and, you know, I, uh, I, I'm not a friend of his from college or anything. I don't get any brownie points for promoting him. All I can say is that because I don't have time to attend those city council meetings and to tap into all of that, I like a roundup and a summary that helps me serve my clients. And there, there are sources like that out there. So I guess I'm just trying to tell your, your listeners, uh, if you can't be there yourself, tap into somebody or some media source or, you know, some expert who was there, who is smart on that topic, who did participate and shake hands at the street level and, you know, analyze and summarize for your own purposes, their data. Uh, and, and, you know, just don't forget that uh, if we sit here and we bitch about local ordinances, we're just talking about dry counties, right? Okay. I've got a complaint. I have a friend in LA. Uh, she and her husband own an infused ice cream company. Now, you live in San Diego. What's the problem with this? The problem is California did not ban in their regulatory oversight infused ice cream. What they did do is they said nothing below 40 degrees. So now my friend and her husband, they have to completely rejigger their brand, their marketing strategy, everything about their company because their main product, it's like telling Porsche, you can't sell turbo sports cars anymore. They're like, what? And now they're having to transition to cookies and brownies and infused you know, edible products that uh, sit on the shelf at room temperature, obviously above 40 degrees. So one little line in the regulatory, I mean, California, there, our regulatory oversight here is from three different government bureaus, and it's more than 200 pages. It's, uh, it's complicated. But when you got one little line like that that determines the fate of a business, you know, it's a big deal. And do I wish that I had had the bandwidth and time to attend 
uh, those meetings and to, you know, really put my heart into it and try to influence uh, regulatory oversight like that? Yes, I do. I don't. So I think we need to do a better job of handing our lobbying dollars, giving our support in whatever shape, it's not always dollars, to the lobbyists and the people on the political scene and the journalists who are reporting all of this and trying to keep us informed. Uh, I don't have the time for it personally, so I'm glad that the industry is getting more complicated and, and more sophisticated, and everybody's beginning to specialize. I mean, that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing people migrate into specialization. Right. I follow Tom Engel's stuff, and as you mentioned, he's absolutely invaluable in as a watchdog on what's going on out there, letting you know which government agencies are pro-cannabis and which are anti and, and which candidates and, and, and all of that stuff. On the other side that you mentioned, keeping an eye out on ourselves as small business people. But in, in this case, I think you can make the case that consumers should be hand in hand with small businesses too. I mean, we're all kind of in this together, trying to get access to good products uh, at good prices before the big guys come in and elbow everybody out. Right. I mean, Philip Morris could come in and squash all kinds of farmers. So you have a, a market that's just coalescing. And what can we do through, you know, normal or Americans for safe access, all these organizations that are there and who's on the right side of this thing. And all of that will will play out, I guess. We'll see as we go. Yeah. Uh, well, I have I have two responses to that one. You know, I think end consumers I'm not a big fan of laziness. I'm always preaching to my kids, you know, don't be lazy. It's not going to get you very far in life. And, but I think, ironically, I think consumers should be allowed to be lazy. They're consumers. It's their dollars that fuel the entire industry and that feed all of us. So I think consumers should be lazy. I, they, have, they have the right to do that. I think as entrepreneurs, as we, you and I, we got a pound of flesh in this game, okay? We can't feed our kids if, if we don't survive in this up-and-coming industry. Whereas consumers, if you're just truly a consumer, you're not an entrepreneur, you're not part of the cannabis industry, you should just be able to walk into a dispensary or tap into ease.com, you know, here in California, get your home delivery, uh, and really not worry about all the rest. I think it's the responsibility of, of entrepreneurs and companies like us to educate the consumers. And back to your earlier question, you know, what am I doing now? I used to write all these articles for these media outlets and I'm doing a lot less of that. And now I'm focusing on writing business plans and operational plans and license applications. Why have I made that transition? Well, I wanna get those companies in place and help them do it right. Because if, as an industry, if we do that correctly, consumers have an easy path and they should have an easy path. They work hard for a living. They work hard for their money. They have to give too much of it to the government. What they have left over, they should not get screwed over on that. We, if we do our job correctly, they have a smooth path to acquisition, if you will. Okay. They, they, they walk in. They have clearly described, fully tested, honestly represented products through marketing and branding. They can quickly tell what works for their particular lifestyle, ailments, or desires, and they can just go through with the transaction and get it. And if they find brands that are reliable and sustainable, well, they're going to come back again and again. Look at General Motors, look at Coca-Cola, look at Philip Morris, right? Those are reliable, sustainable brands that consumers know that they can weave into their lifestyle until the day they die. Right. A true unfettered free market. Let's talk about distribution. Do you see this like a drugstore model? Is it a, a pharmaceutical model where your doctor writes a prescription for you? 
Is it more like buying a six pack or is it more like buying melatonin? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> and, and sometimes we're going to see all of the above within a single jurisdiction, right? Like the state of California or the state of New York, however you define that. Uh, and obviously, this is one of the biggest stressors right now in the cannabis industry uh, is when you look in Oregon, Washington, California, patients and the medical community are crying out and saying, well, we predicted this adult use, you know, quote unquote, recreational is coming in. And now it's pushing away medical. And we're seeing politicians and leaders and influencers in states like Washington and Oregon and California. It's an easy political message and sell for them when they say, well, you know what? It takes a lot of resources, a lot of TME, time, money, effort in order to maintain two separate systems for medical and adult use. You know what? It's just a lot more efficient if we just have one system. Now, in theory, that's correct. Okay, that's a logic that we cannot deny. However, if that single system is implemented in a manner that is not helpful to patients and they notice a decrease in quality or service or whatever they're looking, safe access, right? Or prices go up and suddenly, like in Canada, they're arguing over, I'm a patient, I should not have to pay taxes on my medicine. So, uh, so we're gonna, we're gonna you know, back to your question, we're gonna see all of it for a while, but it's in transition. Everything's just training wheels right now. And that's why I tell people, especially my clients, don't freak out over the current regulatory oversight because it's way messed up. It's, it's just experimental. We need to really kind of gamify this and take it with a bit of a grain of salt and a sense of humor because uh, none of this is permanent. I mean, just last week, Jerry Brown in California uh, made some sweeping changes, right? I believe there were four different, I saw on Cannabis Wire and I'm sure Tom's reporting it, four different uh, bills he signed into law that affect the cannabis industry, at least here in California, and indirectly will affect uh, the industry globally uh, just because of the precedent set by California. Uh, those are big deals, okay? Now that's post Prop 64, which went into effect on January 1st of this year, obviously. That's post a lot of other regulatory updates. So this is in continual flux. Anyone, consumer, entrepreneur, politician, or otherwise, who assumes that this is locked in and, oh, shit, this sucks because it's going to be this way for the next 30 years. That's completely false. We got to keep our eye on the ball. And it's not a binary state where it's legal, not legal. It's, it's an evolving scenario in every state. It's extremely complex. Yep. And, we, and you said it right. We got to keep our eye on the ball because if you don't have the time to put your eye on the ball, you got to hire somebody to put their eye on the ball. And if you don't have the money to hire them, then you might not be able to afford to be in this industry because we didn't invent gravity. This is complicated. And this is, we have to realize that, okay, look at Sam and Kevin Sabay. All right. Now, this is not going to get me a lot of followers. I'm probably going to notice a little decrease in my social media, but I respect these people in terms of their professionalism and their ability to lobby Congress and to lobby other influencers and power brokers in the United States to get their message across and to achieve their goals. They're good at it. Now, the cannabis industry, if it wants to survive and be viable and sustainable, we need to be good at it too. And I find a lot of people in the industry, even executives in charge of multi-million dollar companies, I'll retweet something from Sam or Kevin Sabay with you know, kind of a little critical analysis of it, like, hey, folks, let's think about this, right? And it's interesting. I've gotten communications on the back end from people saying, why are you, why are you giving them a voice? 
Why are you amplifying their bullshit? I'm sorry. I don't even know who, the, who these guys are. Who, what sort of content are they putting out? Uh, they are prohibitionists. They're modern prohibitionists who are opposed. They are blatantly, this is part of their mission statement, they're blatantly opposed to the legalization and normalization. Okay, so they're on the Jeff Sessions side of things. Uh, exactly. And guess what? He knows who they are, and they're all, they're all pals. Okay. Now, that's a problem. Because yes, the cannabis industry, we have mm-hmm. pals in Congress too, right? We could, we could name them. We could spend our time going through all that right now. But we need more pals. <laughs> we, you know, conservatives like to make money too. And there's going to be a lot of money made in the cannabis industry. Now, this is about more than money, at least I would hope, right? I think we can, we can feed our families and improve the world. But if, back to my problem with you know, with the people who say I'm amplifying Sam or Kevin Sabay, uh, if a lot of these people say, I hate them so much, I have them blocked. I said, okay, so, so you're so pissed off at these guys that you block them. I understand they're, they're not on our side. They're opponents. They're modern prohibitionists. But now you can't hear what they're saying because they're influencing hearts and minds very, very effectively. Right. I, I agree with you. You have to have an ear on, on the ground and know what arguments are being made or, or you can't refute them. Exactly. I mean, here's the gross reality of this. And I try to be an optimist. OK, I, I just, you know, optimism is, is just a much better path, in, in my opinion. But I've been talking to a lot of really smart kids on the playground over the past few months. You know, things have really started to heat up, at least here in California, during the past two to three months. I've noticed that I'm doing like 300% the business that I used to. It's insane. Okay. And we, you know, the people making all this, this is happening for a reason. You know, this is not an asteroid from outer space. We are making this happen. This is a man-made thing and we want it or we don't want it. We've got a lot of opposition. But we need to we need to tap into that opposition. We need, in, in other words, if Sam or Kevin Sabay says, "Hey, cannabis is bad," and they typically don't say cannabis, they say marijuana because this is a PR war. Anybody who doesn't understand it's a PR war is really kind of missing out. Okay, if if they say something bad, they're influencing hearts and minds. We need to counter. We need to be thinking in terms of public relations and PR, because if we don't. It, it's just going to be more headaches. It's just going to be more, sorry, nothing below 40 degrees. I mean, why is that in the California regulations? Let's ask ourselves. Who put that there? Who allowed that to be put there? Probably an entrenched interest, I guess. I mean, that, that's one specific instance. But what, what I hear you saying is, you know, PR is always strategic. You have to think about, again, hearts and minds and what is the narrative that's being advanced and how do you counter a false narrative? That's a full-time job in itself. <laughs> There you go. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And now you know why I kick Tom Angel uh, for 50 bucks a month, because I don't have the time to do it. Plus, I'm not the mad scientist genius with it that he is. You know, he's so freaking good at it. Dude, go do your thing. Someday I want to give him $500 a month because that's that's what he deserves, because he takes all that burden off my shoulder, yet still does a good job. Right. It's trustable. It's reliable. Um, and and you know, We've got to do that. If we start blocking the opposition, if we start ignoring, you know, putting our head in the sand, putting our fingers in our ears, la, 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 I can't hear you, that's really not smart. And when I hear that executives of multi-million dollar companies, hey, we all have emotions, I get it. But when those emotions erupt in such a manner that you start not listening to the opposition, not listening to those countering voices, we're 
we're going to suffer a lot of heartache and, and it's going to cost us a lot of money as an industry if we continue on that path, in my humble opinion. Right. You know, you started talking about efficacy science and that's what kind of drew you in in the, in the first place. And for a lot of us, um, I, I did some freelance writing for a CBD company five, six years ago. And that's around when Sanjay Gupta was coming out with his specials on CNN showing how Dravet syndrome was just totally right. obliterated when you started giving kids a lot of CBD. And it worked miracles for people with a, a life-threatening disease. And then you roll from there into, well, it helps veterans with PTSD. A lot of people take Rick Simpson oil for cancer. People take it for anxiety, for insomnia, for inflammation. And there's all kinds of studies. There's hundreds of studies, thousands of studies that show mm-hmm. that it's helpful for these things. We don't have the clinical studies yet because pharmaceutical companies aren't going to do that. But our knowledge continues to evolve. But the evidence is on the side of cannabis as a medicine that makes a lot of sense for a lot of conditions. And does it make sense to keep bringing it back to that message of efficacy rather than, you know, what is it about cannabis that scares America so much? Is it our Puritan roots or what the fact that it sometimes gets you high? I mean, what, and can we even take that on or do we just focus on, hey, it it can help you in all these disease states? Wow. That's a great way of saying it. Um, Yeah. We have a lot of science. We have a lot of anecdotal evidence. Personally, one of the public relations strategies that I'm going to try to weave into my work especially my content marketing work and any kind of articles, quote unquote, uh, or podcasts like this that I do, uh, is that we, we really need, okay, there's this lawyers called argumentum ad misericordium, appeal to pity. You just mentioned Dravet syndrome, four-year-old kids having 800 microseizures per day. They get a little CBD now, two-thirds of those children, when they get a little THC mixed in with the CBD, they do better, okay? Now, let's go back to what you said about puritanism and euphoria. Yes, many, not all, but many fundamentalists, many religions, and when you, especially if you go fundamentalist, hardcore, uh, are, are, you know, uh, delayed gratification, and that gratification comes in the afterlife. I don't... I don't want to get into that. I don't want to criticize anybody's belief system. I want to respect their belief system. But all of those belief systems must recognize science. Again, we didn't invent gravity. And if there's a molecule that gets into the body of that four-year-old child or a combination of molecules through the entourage effect, and it helps improve the health, wellness, and happiness of that child, are we not bad, bad people? It's the best way I can say it and keep this PG rated. Are we not bad, bad people if we make it difficult? In fact, if we don't do everything in our power to make sure that the parents of that Gervais syndrome child can get the best medicine possible, I, I think that makes us kind of evil. Why? Because it's science-based. So I don't care what your belief system is. Science is science. And if you don't want to recognize that a molecule plugs into a CB1 or CB2 receptor and improves the health of a child... I don't think you're a good person, and I'm going to fight you till the day I die. It's messed up. You just defined a moral high ground. I don't know that we want to fight it on on moral principles, but yeah, efficacy and saving lives of children is a pretty defensible position to begin with. It it is very much so, and I I agree with you entirely, Tom, that uh, yeah, back to argumentum ad misericordium, 
even the most, and I don't want to be stereotypical or I don't want people using, you know, bias and stigma against me and the cannabis industry. So I'll try not to use it against them, but even the most cold hearted Republican conservative, you know, they have children and grandchildren, right? They are not just, we can't stereotype them as just these cold hearted vampires who don't want to help anybody. I've seen Republicans, not so much, I don't even want to frame this as Republican versus Democrat. I've seen conservative people who did not believe in the efficacy of cannabis medicine, who had, say, a niece or a nephew with autism, and, and that child gained significant relief. And their, their parents and all their caretakers and all these dozens of people around them who, who were charged with their care, it improves their lives too. It's not just the life of the child. It's better for the overall system. It decreases expenses where we can take the money, you know, and shift it to better places in society. So I, I personally am going to weave a lot of this appeal to pity into my work. I don't think it's, uh, you know, we want to be very careful that, that we don't take an innocent child and turn them into a poster child and just start seeing dollar signs, right? I, I want to counter that right now. That's, that's not what it's about. We got to pay the bills. You got to pay your bills. I got to pay my bills. But if we pay our bills in a way that hurts that child, hmm. if we pay our bills in a way that helps that child and all of their caretakers, and we have that opportunity to forego that opportunity, I don't care what side of the fence you're on. If we forego that opportunity, we're not good people. It often is the case that in your personal life, something happens. I mean, my episode number seven is with Ann Lee, uh, one of the founders of Republicans Against Marijuana Prohibition. Her son, Richard Lee, was in a car accident and uh, became a paraplegic, I believe, and brought some cannabis home and said, Mom and Dad, I'm, I'm smoking marijuana. And they did not want to hear that. He went on to start Oaksterdam University, which is incredibly successful. Right. And they started this organization to promote the idea that this is a viable medicine and it should not be prohibited. And again, it gets back to the narrative and people's ability to have some empathy for suffering. I agree. You, don't, you know, Charlotte's Web is one instance, but you don't want to focus it too much on a, on a suffering child. And then everybody's trying to make money off that kid's back. I mean, there's veterans who need this medicine. There are people, my dad is taking CBD right now and it's helping with his uh, prostate cancer. There's no doubt about that in my mind. There's so many people, millions of people who can use this medicine. And why would you want to prohibit it? That's the narrative we have to tell and shout it loudly. Exactly. And, you know, I don't like we saw the news. Uh, I'm sure I got it through through Tom, uh, where uh, New Jersey has preemptively. It's now it, the article last week was 37 uh, jurisdictions in New Jersey have. I don't know. If, you know, those are mostly cities, municipalities. I'm sure it might be some activity at the county level. But uh, I I have a friend from New Jersey on the East Coast, and we work together with a certain frequency, and she says it's now over 40. Uh, they have preemptively banned cannabis businesses in their jurisdictions. Officially, New Jersey's legalization, adult use legalization, is only rumor. Now, the rumors are very thick, and we know something's going to happen, and we know something's going to happen probably within 6 to 24 months. We don't have a crystal ball. But when you have jurisdictions who... Are they afraid of the euphoria because of their religion? What is it that makes them so opposed to cannabis? And I would like to add, 
the tax revenues from cannabis. Everybody loves money. Conservative, liberal, progressive, Republican, Democrat, gay, straight, tall, short. I don't give a shit. Everybody loves money. Money is the fuel that lets us do good things. You know, the medicine for the kid with Dravet syndrome or autism costs money. We didn't invent gravity. That's the way it is. I'm not that familiar with New Jersey, but my the stereotypically, the mob is there. Is there is there some kind of corrupt influence going on where they want to protect uh, a black market or who knows? But New Jersey is famously corrupt politically. I, what, what else could explain it? I don't know. Um, well, yeah, I think you're taking it to the next yeah. level. And the response is, well, Kurt, they do care about money and they're trying to protect their current revenue sources because they view hemp and cannabis as competing. With That's them. ridiculous, I guess. I, I don't know. It's just hard to figure out. It's just what you said earlier. It's going to be case by case, state by state. There's going to be a lot of different scenarios as this unfolds over decades. Yeah, really. Yeah. And in fact, from a business perspective, one of the biggest issues when I'm onboarding uh, a, a new client, if sometimes they know exactly the jurisdiction in which they want to operate and the industry segment that they want to be in, that's, that's sometimes that's just locked in stone from the first minute they talk to me. Other times they come to me specifically to resolve those issues. Kurt, we don't know what industry segment we should do. We're sitting on a pile of money. We think this can improve the world. We really want to be players. We don't know the industry segment. We don't know the jurisdiction. And one of the first things I tell them is, well, this is a big science project. We're going to create a big spreadsheet and we're going to gather a lot of data. And we're going to, because holy cow, if you want to do adult use, you've got nine different states. If you've got the, you know, if you have the resources to be able to work outside of your home jurisdiction, you've got a lot of territory you can deal with just in the United States alone. If you want to go international, hey, now you've got all of Canada to deal with too. That's why this is getting so exciting, right? If you want to work on the medical side of it, well, gosh, we've got dozens of medical states. Most of them suck, quite honestly, like what we got going on in Texas and some of the southern states is just a joke. It's not even, it doesn't even constitute a medical program. It helps such a small slice of their patient population that it's like insulting. Okay, but still, it is progress. I always hear that opinion. They're like, but Kurt, it's progress. I know uh, it is progress and it, it, it's helping a few people. We need to broaden that. But from an entrepreneurial perspective and what's going to fuel the growth of this industry and bring safe access to both patients and consumers is companies intelligently locating themselves where, where it's the best fit for their resources, their goals, you know, all of that. And so I want to encourage all of your listeners to don't limit yourself to your home jurisdiction. If you have the resources or you can form partnerships, you can somehow have the luxury and the power of looking at all of North America and saying, okay, for what we want to do and the resources we have, where is the best fit? That is the way to approach this industry. In right. And there, there's so much more data becoming available for all kinds of consumer products, but we know much more about the demand for cannabis, I think. I mean, that data is coming out every day, right? Oh, absolutely. There's. I just hired a research assistant last week because I cannot keep up with this stuff. I, I just, you know, I'm just one human being and I started really looking at the opportunity here and uh, I, I knew I needed some help, right? I've known that for a few months. Uh, and I was like, okay, where do I need that? Am I hiring an editor? Am I hiring a technical writer? What am, and it soon became apparent to me that this is research. This is, okay, there's so much data being produced on a daily basis, our metrics. And this is the exact opposite of the problem we had 10 or 20 years ago, where there was nothing. 
right? It was High Times Magazine and a couple others. It's like, this is not business metrics. This is Now we've got MJ Retailer and we've got all these business publications. We've got all this great data coming in. So much so that uh, we don't have time to go through all of it. So one of the best things you can do, no matter what your scale, I mean, I don't have 200 employees. I'm a lone wolf. But I've got just enough resources to bring in a really tight research assistant and to answer all these questions that we're talking about, because we can't just answer them from the gut. You know, we can't go, well, I think, no, my clients aren't going to make a $10 million business decision over a I think. They want hard metrics. They want objective, logical direction when they make those deep pocketed decisions. It's a bit of a gold rush. I mean, um, the opportunities are unfolding and do you dig for gold or do you sell shovels or um, there's a, lo- a lot of things happening. Levi Strauss, right? During the first gold rush, since we use that analogy all the time, did the guy dig for gold? Right, and he became, <laughs> no, and he sold a lot of blue jeans. That's right. Ancillary services, sell the pickaxes, sell the blue jeans. And that's, you know, that's that's a real opportunity. I, I would tell so many of my clients are like, gosh, I want to do cultivation. I want to do extraction. I want to do retail dispensing. Those are the two most popular uh, industry segments. And I'm always suggesting to them, Think about ancillary services. You know, you really might want to do transportation, testing, distribution. There's going to be so many opportunities in distribution with jurisdictions like California. You know, and by California's regulations, the cultivators and the manufacturers cannot sell directly to a retail dispensary. And this is what a lot of consumers and professionals in the industry right now don't understand is that they are forced by law to work through a licensed distributor. So there are, see now, what if all these new states, New York's going to come online, Jersey's going to come online, Florida's going to come online. As they come online, what if they do the same thing? What if just a slight change in their regulation says, well, you must work through, just like California, you got to work through a licensed distributor. That's one little nuance in the regulatory oversight that creates a trillion dollar industry segment. And it's a very- Mind boggling. So here's another thing that I know you talk about, and that strains mm-hmm. and strain names in particular. I mean, there's a lot of confusion about sativa and indica. We know the basics of that. You know, indica makes you sleepy. Sativa is more of an energy high. But does that even apply anymore? And those are just the strains. When you get down to the, the product that you're going to see on the shelf and the, you see Gorilla Goo or, you know, all these other things. What's going on there and how does how does the consumer begin to make sense of that in terms of getting the product that's going to work for them? You know, it's it's that's a great question. Just uh, just last night I met with David Rines from the MJBA, the Marijuana Business Association. They're celebrating uh, 6 years now. You know, they've been doing this for a while. And he and I came on the topic of strains and sativa versus indica. And so I'll quote him. It's total bullshit. It's total bullshit. Uh, and the reason I say that, and I can say that with such you know a cocky tone, uh, is that's what the chemistry tells us. That's what the science tells us. If we get confused, we need to go back to the science. And I've been talking to people who have been consuming cannabis for decades like myself, and we're breaking out of that mindset, and we're starting to smoke joints of quote-unquote indica in the morning. And guess what? You don't you don't necessarily get couch lock. You don't necessarily go to sleep. Um, this gets really complicated, and we could obviously talk about it for hours. Here's what it comes down to. We've got 200 terpenes in the cannabis plant. Now, those terpenes are possible 
to express themselves in the genome, right? They're programmed into the genome and they don't express themselves in every cultivar or phenotype or strain or however you want to label it, right? So some strains have so little myrcene as it might as well not be there. That's called trace amounts, right? So I need myrcene to stay healthy. Guess what? Don't go with this quote unquote strain because it doesn't have much. I need limonene. Boy, I need a ton of that. You know, my doctor got smart on cannabinoids and terpenes and said, Kurt, you need, you need limonene and, uh, and, and you need pinene and you don't need linalool and you don't need myrcene. Let's just say that's, that's what happened. I'm not saying that's reality. Uh, then I'm going to seek out those terpenes and those cannabinoids. And that doesn't even assume this. It's, it's poorly labeled. Uh, people need to tune into Kristen Yoder. Uh, she's real active on LinkedIn. She's been in the cannabis industry for 13 years here in Los Angeles. And she does a podcast series, and I really like her approach to it. She calls herself the bullshit detector, the BS detector. So, and she is one of the first intelligent voices in the industry where I sat down with her in Venice Beach a few months ago, and she said, God damn it, sativa versus indica is the most stupid thing. I just wish people would quit saying that because it's holding us back from advancing our science and advancing our understanding of this plant and the way we're turning it into consumer products, which therefore confuses consumers too. Now, you know, I see $80 bottles of CBD tincture and stuff. This is expensive stuff. And a lot of desperate parents are buying it for sick children or for themselves or for ailing parents, right? And if they have a fundamental misunderstanding of the science and chemistry of this plant via something like sativa versus indica, that's not a good thing. There's so much education that needs to take place. People are just hearing about CBD and now there's, there's terpenes that affect the receptors and affect the expression of the cannabinoids. There's a lot of uh, education that needs to take place. Meanwhile, you know, when you walk in and a bud tender who's probably stoned himself says, try this, I, I love it. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've had that experience where, you know, I, I go in and I'm looking for something energetic or, but yeah, if those terms are essentially meaningless, then what do we need some sort of classification system and will there be competing classification systems until we get one that everybody is invested in? I'm talking to people right now who are either just because they're either going to profit on this or not, regardless of their motive, they are talking to me about forming industry standards. And some of those industry standards would be U.S. or state-based. But, but, you know, hey, everybody wants to shoot for the stars. Some of these people are talking about international, global industry standards for cannabis. And now, okay, I like the wave of 21st century marketing that doesn't label something indica or sativa, but it labels it, this is our relaxed product. This is our chill product. This is our energy product. This is our productivity product. This is our go run a goddamn marathon product, right? <laughs> right. This, this is whatever. There is performance enhancement in cannabis. Maybe we can talk about that in the future. It's a big interest of mine. Uh, but uh, so, so, yeah, we see all these different efficacies. What I do like about the sativa versus indica is it does give lay people consumers a mental framework, you know, a mental model with which they can approve, uh, approach the industry and being a consumer of legal cannabis products. Because, yeah, I don't want to see, we've all heard about the first time bad experiences, right? Where somebody like a veteran like you and I had a really 
potent sativa, let's say, shared it with a newbie, not always the, the wisest thing to do right, and they had a panic attack, or they fainted, or something negative occurred. So if that person can intelligently choose, quote unquote, an indica, even though that might be kind of a fallacious uh, label on the science side, then that's a good thing. You know, if, if your goal is to go to sleep because you suffer insomnia and, and a lot of pain, then you want to decrease your pain, get a little sleep so you can have a good day the next day. If your goal is I roll out of bed at nine o'clock in the morning and you're a person who suffers just really severe social anxiety, and by the way, 330 million people in the United States, 100 million of them suffer from social anxiety, sometimes so severe they get agoraphobia and can't leave their damn house, which does not help anybody, right? That doesn't help society. It doesn't help them. That person doesn't want to go to sleep at 9 a.m. or whenever they get up and try to get on with their day, right? Right. Another layer of complexity that, that you kind of touched on there is that we all have different genetics and we may have a different response to the exact same cannabinoid. Ouch. Ow. You're hurting my brain because now it's getting complicated. So, <laughs> I'm, really, the, to take everything we've been talking about here, and we haven't even talked for an hour, we're just scratching the surface, and add to it a layer of subjective efficacy. And I, let me give you just a 30-second story of this is the best illustration of subjective efficacy I've ever personally encountered. I had a client here in LA last year. We're standing on a veranda overlooking West Hollywood. It's a beautiful evening. We had a successful business day. This uh, person did not smoke cannabis. They did not vape cannabis. Uh, she had kind of a rare disease, a unique physiology, and she took the Petra mints that are 2.5 milligrams THC. Microdose. Yeah, I like those things. I do too. Love. She got me hooked on them. I, I love them. Like Kiva Confections, great company. I, I check them out. <clears throat> anyway, we're, so we're standing on this veranda just celebrating a really you know, great day, bright future for everybody. I'm smoking a bowl. I like my glass spoons. Uh, she's doing the Kiva mints. And I, I just said, you know, I, cannabis is a sharing thing. I feel bad not sharing it with you. And she said, oh, what the hell? I'll try a little, just a little puff. And I said, all right, well, you know, only if you're comfortable with it. So we talked about the particular strain that I had in my bowl a little. She took one little puff and fainted right in front of me, fell to the ground. I'm glad she didn't fall over the veranda because we're on the second floor and her mother would have sued the shit out of me. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of happy. So I, that was like my third bowl. Okay, I've been smoking this stuff all day. She had a micro puff and fainted right in front of me. This is a great example of subjective efficacy. <laughs> you just can't tell. Um, right. Kurt learned a lesson that day and, you know, uh, yeah, don't don't make people pass out. It's not a good thing. <laughs> I mean, maybe someday your twenty three and me results will say you're gonna react this way to this terpene. I would love that. Yeah, let's 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 get all these different tools yeah, bound together. I, I think it's gonna go that direction, Tom. I, I, I really think somehow we're gonna come up with the tools and we're and there's people are gonna get rich doing this, quite honestly, whether it's twenty three and me or whatever, uh, saying, you know, I want to go to somebody and say, look, based on my particular physiology and genetics and me, I want to be totally self-centered. Based on me, what are the best terpenes and cannabinoids and flavonoids to put into my body to get the results I want? And quite honestly, as a libertarian, the results I want are the results I want. I don't necessarily even want a doctor telling me that. I'm going to tell myself. I'm going to do my own research. 
And then, but I want some experts on the outside, some third party resources to dig into the chemistry of my body and, and my genetics and tell me, well, well, gosh, Kurt, the reason you've noticed you don't like strains that have a whole lot of mercine in them is because it does this and that goes counter to your lifestyle and to your health and to your receptors. And, you know, you need to be focusing on strains with a lot of, uh, you know, limonene or, or humulene or whatever, right? But but that's the way we need to be thinking. It's what's best for me. Because you sit down with one of your buddies and he's like, oh man, this, uh, you know, this grape ape, it's just, it's the bomb. I'm loving this stuff. You got to come over and check this out. Okay, that's great. Don't anticipate that you're going to love it too, because you might actually hate it. Uh, until we get that crazy matrix of things, you know, desired effects that we're after and how we may react to them, that'd be great to have. But until then, I guess, do you recommend people go to the dispensary, get the smallest amount you can, which I found last week was I had to get three grams, you know, three grams of an indica, three grams of a sativa, and three grams of a high CBD strain. And by the way, I, I tried the indica last night, and I was up reading much later than I normally am. It didn't, did not put me up. I think that's due to the terpenes that were in there. Did are there test results? Do you have the, the lab analysis for, for those particular strains? Yeah, they're on the jar. Um, Excellent. Check those out and look at the, I'm very interested in the results of this. If that's a quote unquote indica, but yet it didn't you know, give you couch lock and put you to sleep, I think that may be due to one, your subjective efficacy and two, the terpenes. And I'm not minimizing the influence of the cannabinoids, but the first thing that comes to my mind is your subjective efficacy and the terpenes is what I would dig into on the lab results. So, but that's a, the experiment of, of one person, and that's what we all have to do, I guess, is, you know, just try small amounts, see how they react, see what you like and what you want. You know, do you want to go run a half marathon or do you, do you want to knock out? Do you want to get locked? Exactly. Exactly. And those are different terpene profiles, different cannabinoid profiles, different modes of work, if you will. And yeah, that's exactly the way it's consumed. Test and learn. We covered a lot of stuff here. Thank you for taking the time and just uh, appreciate your expertise. You know, maybe we can do it again. Um, I, I hope we do, Tom. Yeah, let's, let's definitely do it again. All right. Thanks, Kurt. Hey, you bet, Tom. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate you helping me kind of amplify my message here. And uh, I, I think there's plenty of stuff we could do down the road. You've been listening to Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast with Thomas J. For more on medicinal cannabis for baby boomers, visit us at cannaboomers.com.